unexamined, you'll most likely go on to replicate what you came from, right? That what we came from creates the blueprint of what we just expect, right? Do I think people are gonna be there for me or not? Do I think people are gonna be consistent or not, right? But the good news is once we start to examine this within ourselves, it's completely healable. Welcome to the Live Your Fuck Yes Life podcast, your place for all things real talk and conscious conversations about shit that really fucking matters. I'm Amanda Catherine Loy, mindset coach, actor, and truth teller extraordinaire. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a thought to help you face your fears, speak your truth, and get you one step closer to living your fuck yes life. Are you ready? Here we go. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to this episode of the Live Your Fuck Yes Life podcast. I'm Amanda Catherine Loy, and today I have a very fucking special guest. And honestly, like a guest I have been so stoked to have on the podcast because ever since reading her book, I have completely fallen head over heels for this human, but also just for this way of talking about a theory that I have wanted to approach on the podcast and talk about candidly for a really long time. But the truth is I have yet to come across before, you know, coming across Jessica's book and her work. Somebody who I felt was in alignment with my vision of this this work and this theory and this 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 whole concept of attachment theory which we're going to be diving into today. Um, and a lot of you have asked for us to talk about this on the podcast and I've really wanted to but I haven't come across a person that I was like, yes, the way they talk about this really, really is in alignment with how I want to talk about this and how I want to have a conversation on the podcast. So I'm so excited to have Jessica here. Um, and so for those of you who are not familiar with her, here's a little bit about who she is before we deep dive. So Jessica Fern is a psychotherapist, public speaker, and trauma and relationship expert. In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multi-partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas, helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. She is also the author of Polysecure, which if you are watching on YouTube, you are seeing me holding up. Um, and I truly like ate this book up. Like I, I devoured it. Um, and I have recommended it to to all of my friends, whether they are in non-monogamous relationships or not, frankly. Um, and I'm just so, so, sto so, so stoked to have you here today. So welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Quite an introduction. I love, I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> it's always so wild. Like when you, when you hear your own voice and your, your own bio, like read to you, yeah. it always freaks me out a little bit when other people do that. Yeah, totally, totally. Or it's been weird when people quote me back to myself. I'm like, oh, I wrote that? <laughs> Truly. I know. As, a, as an author, too, I'm like, yeah, okay, I forgot that I said that. Right. <laughs> or that in sounds that pretty good. Did I write that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. Okay, so before we get into attachment theory, because I want to deep dive into this, like, really, really, let's go. Awesome. But I'm curious, like, how did you even get into this work, particularly? I, obviously, your work as a psychotherapist, I know a lot of therapists identify with attachment theory and their practices. But what has kind of, like, led you to really focus on this particular avenue? Yeah. And you mean even specifically in poly? Yeah, or whatever comes yeah. up for you. Yeah, I think it comes from, I haven't talked much about this, sort of my method, so to speak, of like, you know, my, a lot of my research training was in grounded theory, where instead of sort of, I take the theory and then I try to, 
make it work or impose it onto the data. It's more like, oh, I'm not coming with a theory. I'm just truly listening to the data. I'm seeing the patterns that emerge and then what theory comes out of that. And so as I was with, you know, hundreds, thousands of couples opening up or individuals or polycules struggling with non-monogamy, I'm listening to the data, you yeah. know, and I knew the prescription wasn't, oh, just go back to monogamy. This shit's too hard. <laughs> so as I would start to sort through, like, what's really going on here? I was like, oh, this, these are attachment ruptures. That's what's happening. And then as I started to bring that kind of language forward to clients, um, it everyone was like, oh, like there was such a relief. It mm. finally had an answer. Mm. The, it, the feedback I was getting, like, oh, now this makes sense. Yeah. Instead of like, we just have to give this shit up because it's too traumatic. Mm. I love yeah. that. And I, I, it's interesting you say that because I have a lot of friends who have who identifies non-monogamous or poly or are trying to step into that space and their their therapists are not necessarily yeah. um, poly-friendly or what I would consider poly-friendly. And always the answer is, well, this is the thing that's that's the change and now you're feeling this rupture, so this must be the thing to remove. Exactly. Uh, so I'm curious, like, did you were you able to come from that place of, hey, let's look at something else because you yourself are practicing in that space? Or like, what was your lens that really allowed you to to shift that? Yeah, I think, well, I knew that wasn't the answer. It was like, there's too many people that want to do this. And seeing that this isn't just a choice for many people, this is an orientation. Yeah. So in the same way, I could never work with a non-straight person and tell them to be straight. It was like, how could I practice, you know, being a therapist and tell these people to not be who they feel they are, right? So it was like something else had to be found. And it felt like it's on me as a therapist to figure that out, not the client. Mm, I love that. Yeah, yeah mm. I love that. And I, I, I know personally, like, I don't necessarily have a poly-identifying uh, therapist, or at least not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Um, but she has been, she has, she reflects that. And actually I shared with her after I read your book, I shared with her your book and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm adding this to my resource page and immediately like reading this too. So it's been really fun to speak to her around her also like as a therapist, her experience with other therapists and their relationship to attachment theory, because I've noticed that so many people approach it really differently and why I loved your book so much is because I think anybody, no matter how you identify and how you choose to do relationships, I think anybody can read this book and immediately feel seen with, in yeah. relation to attachment theory. Because I don't know, I think what I struggled with a lot before and what I noticed that you you talk the opposite of, which is why I identified with it so much, is that a lot of therapists or just people in the space and who are obsessed with attachment theory, it's almost like the way that we see Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or human design where it's like, I have found the answers. Right. And it's like, I fit myself in this box. And so now everything makes sense, which I think is an important step, an understanding step. But there's also, you know, in those spaces, it's also like, well, now I found my people. This is where I'm going to live forever. And there's no, you know, self-actualization work to adjust out of potentially harmful habits or ways that right. we're feeling, you know, negatively impacted because of our attachment style. And 
I, I mean, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like from what you were you know, presenting in the book that you have a very different approach. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is not using it as a rigid typology. Yeah. Right. And especially I think what you're touching on too is not weaponizing it. Like people learn about their Myers-Briggs type or their Enneagram and there's actually, those are not rigid either when you really get into the depths of them, yeah. right? Um, but it's easy to be like, oh, you're an eight you know, and therefore you're aggressive. Well, it's like, you know, you're missing the whole point of yeah. the system. And so the same thing with attachment, like don't weaponize it and just say, oh, that person's, you know, disorganized or avoidant. And so they're a narcissist or something like mm. that. Right. So yeah, how do we really use these? How do we understand these as survival strategies that were like wisdom experiences based on where we came from? Yeah. But they're also survival strategies that sort of had now have their expiration date. You know, so things that we now like once were adaptive are now becoming maladaptive. Mm. And we have to evolve and heal past them. Right? I love that. Yeah, because I mean, and this whole thing is trauma is rooted in trauma at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So right. if we're staying in our trauma, right, then that's defeating the purpose, I think. Exactly. So for those of the humans who have heard about attachment theory or maybe don't understand like the different va- variables, can we just quickly touch on Quickly. Yeah, I know it's it's hard cuz they're so, so diverse and like they're also so intense like the reasons behind them and obviously like y'all just need to read this book to really get the whole thing, but can we quickly surface talk about the different ones and Yeah. you know, how they work? Yes, my elevator speech. So let me know if I'm going too long or too short with okay, it. Okay. Right. Good. <laughs> right. <laughs> So like the basic, basic, you know, three point premise on attachment theory is it, you know, was created by John Bowlby and then sort of um, became practical with Mary Ainsworth and their research 40, 50, 60 years ago already. And, you know, the premise is that as human beings, we need caretakers to survive and we need to bond. And that bonding isn't just like you change my diaper and give me food. <laughs> that bonding is about emotional attunement, physical touch, this real like availability. Mm-hmm. So Sue Johnson kind of breaks it down as our nervous system is looking for, are you available? Are you responsive? Are you emotionally engaged, right? And our, even I'm doing a lot of work on polyvagal theory right now. And, you know, Stephen Porges's work is all about you know, that automatic, autonomic nervous system is sort of always looking and scanning like, are you safe or are you dangerous, right? So that's what's happening, you know? Mm. And if you're safe, I can move towards. If you're dangerous, I need to pull away. And so if enough of our attachment needs are met through our caretakers, not perfectly, but enough of the time, then we feel secure. We feel secure with them. We feel secure in ourselves. We feel secure in the world, right? Which is um, huge. Mm -hmm. But more than half the time, that's not the case. And that's not necessarily because parents are failing. There's lots of cultural, social, environmental factors that make it so not every parent and child can bond um, in the way that they need. Mm -hmm. But then there's three insecure styles. And so those would be if parents are not available at all, they're like overt neglect, or maybe they're physically available, but just emotionally not available they're tuned out or they're really focused not on the internal world or the emotional experience of the child they're more focused on academics achievements appearance 
things like that. Um, a child learns like, well, I can't really rely on anyone here. I can kind of only rely on myself. So I need to become super self-reliant mm -hmm. and keep people at arm's length in order to be safe within myself. And so that's sort of the avoidant dismissive attachment style where the attachment system has sort of been shut down. Right? There's a deactivation of those attachment needs where I'm not even identifying anymore that I have those needs. Mm -hmm. For connection and intimacy, maybe a little bit, you know, but like not that much, right? Or only to a certain point. Have you noticed I the avoidant, um, this is one of the insecure types that you mentioned. So there's the avoidant. And I feel like it's a small percentage of humans, but it's, I feel like I can pick an avoidant out from like a crowd based off of, and I, what I've noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've noticed in those humans is that they're almost so independent that they're yeah. like, it, it's it's used almost as like a positive, like a, a yeah. ruse to support themselves. But at the end of the day, they don't know when to ask for help. They don't ask for help and yeah. they push it away so deeply when it's offered. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think they're culturally um, praised, right? Like the idea of independence or so someone who's more avoidant, they can, they know how to do well in school or do well in business and work and things like that. Um, yeah, and just asking for help is what can bring up anxiety and things that bring up anxiety, they're going to push away from like, oh, nope, not even going to do that, right? Mm. Can't be needy, right? And needy would just be having a need period. Yeah. Or dismissive avoidant type, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think there's like, all of these almost have masculine feminine versions, regardless of your sex and gender, you know, and I think the more feminine version sometimes is over caretaking and focusing on others to avoid myself mm. and to dismiss my own feelings. And I'm really busy with all of you, oh, almost the martyr, yeah. <laughs> right? But no one's actually truly getting their needs met here. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's, that's one of the insecure. The next is sort of the other end of the spectrum. So avoidant dismissive is deactivating the attachment needs then preoccupied or anxious is hyperactivating the attachment needs. And that usually comes from a home environment where there was love, but there was inconsistency. So maybe parents were sometimes around, sometimes traveling, sometimes present, sometimes distracted. Um, other kids in the house that took time and energy away, like, you know, there can be a lot of good reasons, again, not parent blaming, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm here with you and it feels really amazing. And the child wants that. And then like, well, where'd you go? Mm. So it's really disruptive. So they learn, oh, if I get a little bigger, if I get a little louder or whinier or demanding, oh, then I get maybe a little bit of what I want. Mm. Right. So this person is more hyperactive in their attachment system. They usually are very hyper-focused on their partners or their attachment figures. And there's a constant scanning. Are you there for me or are you not? Okay, today was a good day, but is tomorrow a good day? Oh, sex was good, but is it going to be there tomorrow? Like, mm. this is oh, you're giving me what I'm going to constantly complain about what I'm not getting. But then when you give it to me, I'm going to like, I can't really receive it or I don't feel like I'm worth it or I don't trust it. Right. Mm. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff churning inside. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of mental, you know, gymnastics going on around relationships. A lot of overthinking. A lot of overthinking. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then the last one is called disorganized or fearful avoidant. And it kind of vacillates between the two. Mm -hmm. And that is usually when there's been more severe trauma 
where the person who's supposed to be soothing you, your caretaker, and like alleviating your fear is also the person causing your fear. So that's a really right paradoxical nervous system experience where mm. um, my defense mechanisms are up to fight, flight, or freeze. And I want to be comforted by caretaker. And so the attachment system wants the same person that's, mm. you know, either causing fear, causing harm to someone else or them directly. Yeah. Right. And this can happen in adulthood too, obviously, you know? Yeah. I was just going to ask, because thank you for laying those out. Cause I think yeah. it's really helpful to hear the differentiations, but I was just going to ask, you know, I think so often we hear attachment theory in, in, in juxtaposition to us being children and how, you know, especially within our parents, cause those are our caretakers when we're young right. or, or at least we have a guardian of some kind, but is, do you find that attachment theory is pretty static because of our childhood or is it impacted by relationships we have, you know, in our teens through adulthood? Because the last one you were just mentioning, it sounds a lot like an abusive relationship, you know, like I'm thinking about like, okay, so many abuse survivors talk about wanting to leave and their person that they're most fearful, but they're also so in love with this person and they feel so supported and there's so many positives that they've experienced. So you know, like where does that line or is there a line when it comes to attachment theory? Yeah. So if you unexamine, you'll most likely go on to replicate what you came from, right? That what we came from creates the blueprint of what we just expect, right? Do I think people are going to be there for me or not? Do I think people are going to be consistent or not? Mm. Right. But the good news is once we start to examine this within ourselves, it's completely healable. And so just because you've had an insecure path, you can, you're not destined to that. You can totally have what's called secure functioning mm-hmm. or earn secure attachment to you in adulthood. But what you're touching on also is our adult experiences can create new attachment things we never went through, right? That someone could have felt secure in their childhood and then they go through certain adult relationship traumas and they're in one of those other insecure experiences mm-hmm. style. Um, or they always felt like I have a friend who was like, she's always been the avoidant one. She's like, I'm totally the anxious one now. You yeah. know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because you've d- you're a different person now for mm-hmm. different reasons. And that relationship was different. So, mm. yeah. And then you pepper in or throw in, you know, some non-monogamy. She's going to say. Yeah. yeah. And most people's attachment system is just going completely wonky. So I will say, as as somebody who has been poly for almost three years, you know, I experienced that for sure, you know, and I think it comes back to what you said earlier about, you know, so many people go to therapy and they're opening up or, you know, entering non-monogamy and immediately it's like, well, just stop this thing because it's shifting, right? And I have always been securely attached. I still feel very securely attached. However, as soon as... I stepped into, uh, you know, ENM and really quickly into poly because I'm very demisexual and just it was never going to be anything but that for me and I should have known better, um, you know. And as soon as my husband and I like took that step, you know, I noticed some anxious attachment patterns mm-hmm. pop up for me. 
Um, and I had never, ever, ever been worried about being replaced or fearful of ab- abandonment or any of the, these things. And I would have never considered myself like a needy person or somebody who was like, I just need you to affirm me all the time. Like that was just not something I experienced. And then all of a sudden, you know, that was coming up for me. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you navigate that within your clients like when you're talking or even talking about like how that comes up and I I know for me it felt really bad like it felt like this is a bad thing because this is outside of what is my comfort and what I know this relationship to feel like and myself to feel like so maybe I should take a step back right and I didn't do that because I still was like this is me this is my identity and I'm gonna move forward but I also have done a lot of self-work so I like could I could like step outside of myself and understand what was happening. But I know a lot of people like are just not in that space. So like, how do you even, how do you even absorb that and step into, you know what I mean? Like it's scary to have that uh, immediate feeling completely shift, you know? Totally. Yeah. And I think for everyone that's listening who resonates with even what you just said, right. Or had their version of like, yeah, whoa, I opened up whether it was solo or from a marriage or a relationship and like, all these things started happening that I never experienced. Um, honestly, at this point, I would say that's pretty normal. Mm. It's really normal because you're going through it. You're like in, um, oh, my mind just blanked when the butterfly goes through the chrysalis, like the new paradigm, right? Yeah. And all these new things are happening. And so first, what I do with someone is start to sort through Like if I was working with you and your husband, I'd be like, okay, let's get to the nitty gritty of, are some of these insecurities actually relationship issues between you and your husband, right? Or is some of this just your own history that's been nicely masked through being monogamous, right? And the structure of monogamy has kept you safe, right? And Mm -hmm. secure. And now that you don't have that, you're feeling insecure. Um, Or there's a whole new realm of just insecurities that you never had to face before because it's a different relationship paradigm. Yeah. And I, and I think that's it, you know, I, and I think that's something that I think I was really naive to yeah. was, Hey, I've been in a monogamous framework living in a society that perpetuates monogamy as the norm my whole life. And now I'm just going to jump right into something completely different, but I'm still in the same relationship. So it felt like not a big shift on one right. hand, but it, it really is. And I think not acknowledging that is – I've talked a lot about this with my husband, and we were like, yeah, I wish that we had known that and been more intentional around taking smaller steps as we shifted yeah. into this totally separate way of operating, really, from, yeah. from you know, from so many angles. Um, yeah, that's definitely my biggest regret <laughs> in Polly. Totally. And, and I've seen it enough where I'm more upfront with people like slow down. Like I know that's not easy for especially the one partner who's like so ready to go and has yeah. been wanting to do this. Yeah. But like you're going to prevent so many ruptures, traumas, avoidable hurts if you just slow the fuck down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's hard though. It's hard to slow down when you're excited. Completely. I get yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So something that I've been thinking a lot about in the context of non-monogamy 
and I think a lot of people who are monogamous or even ENM would say, how do I even build secure attachment in my, because I think there's a difference between having secure attachment within yourself and having secure attachment within your partnerships, because I, would you agree that you can have differing attachment styles in different partnerships? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That was my thinking too. And I know you talk about that in the book a bunch. And so, but I, to me, and I think a lot of people hear secure attachment and immediately go to, okay, well, the things that I have been programmed to believe equal secure attachment are things like living with somebody, being legally bound to them, having a lot of time and their energy. And all of a sudden, if you're opening that up to multiple intimate partnerships, how do you even have one securely attached relationship? You know, like, is that something that you hear a lot of? Yes. It's something that I see become really difficult for people. Do you think it is actually a difficult thing or just a difficult idea to wrap your mind around? I think it's a difficult transition because there are some people who don't have to go through this transition, right? (laughs) And who have been sort of non-monogamous from the start, right? Or don't, I haven't identified their security and relationship from the structural things like you're saying, right? But most people, a lot of people are having to go through that transition and you're like, right, how do I feel safe with you if we don't have a baby or if we're not going to like plan vacations or whatever it is, you know? Mm. So, you know, what I talk about in the book is I wouldn't give up those structural things in relationships. It's not about abandoning all of them um, or demoting them. However, I don't want to rely on those or the actual secure attachment. And really it's like how we're treating each other, how we're showing up in the relationship is what makes us actually feel secure. Mm -hmm. Can I rely on you emotionally? Are you there for me? So what does that look like practically? Because I think a lot of people are probably listening and being like, okay, well, I can practically see when I'm living with somebody. And there's the practicality of a marriage certificate and going through that whole thing in front of your family. But like, what what does it practically mean to have great conversations or, you know, have emotional intimacy? Like, the fuck do I even start, you know? (laughs) Totally. Right. So some of it too is like, do you want this relationship to even be sort of meeting each other's attachment needs? I think that's mm. an initial uh, negotiation point. Cause you know, we might have partners where it's like, yeah, I enjoy you. It's great. We see each other occasionally, or we're more of an interest space. We play racquetball together. We play certain games together mm. and that's beautiful. Like in that, you know, whereas other relationships, it's like, Oh no, I want to be, one of the people you can go to. I want to be one of the people that's showing up for you, like in the ways that matter to you. And so mm. we also have to know ourselves enough to even define what does that mean for me? You know? That is so beautiful. Mm. I also just want to say for everyone who's listening who may not be ENM, like that I think is something you can apply to your friendships, to all the relationships in your yeah. life. Like instead of feeling like everything needs to meet this massive thing, genuinely ask yourself, like, what do I want this relationship to serve in my life? Yeah. I, I, I think that is the most important question maybe we can ever ask ourselves. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, like, and what, I don't think what, we ask that. I don't think we do. We, well, we just expect it's going to look a certain way, whether it's a friendship or a work relationship or a romantic relationship mm. instead of like 
oh, what is the expression of these two or three or four people coming together? What does it want to be? You know, mm. like there's even a larger wisdom here that's informing mm. this. So mm-hmm. how do we break from, I know this is a huge question, but like how do, I'm just thinking as I go, like how do we break from the expectation curse, right? <laughs> totally. And and check in with ourselves because even I, who I, I check in with myself all the fucking time, I, I notice, you, you know, even in my partnerships where it's like, I don't. I don't know that I probably want to see you more than like once or twice a month maybe. And, you know, like we have this really awesome bond when it comes to this thing. But like that's that's about the extent of our relationship. And I feel good about that. You feel good about that. But there's this – I still notice this internalized expectation of like why are they not messaging me today or – you know, d- because they're putting their energy elsewhere right now, does that mean that I matter less, mm-hmm. you know? And the, those things pop up and it's like, well, if it doesn't follow that typical pathway. Escalator. Right. The, yeah, the relationship escalator that we're inherently not as important or that relationship matters less or whatever, you know? Right. Like, how do we yeah. break from that? Yeah. Well, reading the relationship escalator book is a good start, good start right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, just, and I think what you're doing though, is the mindfulness of just catching those expectations, Yeah, you know, and so seeing when there starts to be like the story script starts to play of frustration or doubt or, you know, oh, what are they doing or this or that? And when that starts to come into play going, okay, is this because there's maybe agreements that we've spoken about that this person's not meeting and it's more of a relationship thing or, oh no, these are my like invisible expectations about what someone's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And we've never agreed to that yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a huge one. It is a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. Yeah. And those change with time too. Yeah. The importance of allowing for evolution. Yeah. (laughs) So challenging for so many of us. (laughs) totally yeah yeah for sure especially I think also in in the context of monogamy too like you know relationships can change there too and that doesn't make them less valuable or important and yeah 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 but I'm even thinking of like my my husband now when we were first dating I had more of an expectation that he would text me or I have like zero expectation about that now yeah (laughs) and it was such an offense you know, in some ways or a sign of something if yeah. I didn't hear back. And now I just know him and I'm like, whatever. I'm like, babe, what'd you, like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> you alive. Right. <laughs> Whereas in the beginning, I had very little expectation of him being like a part of my son's life. Whereas now as a stepfather, like that expectation mm. has evolved. Right. And so, yeah, yeah this is a little example of. Yeah, I love that. That's a huge everyday life wave. Totally. Can come and go. I love yeah. that. Can you speak to the secure base versus safe haven? Because yeah. this was an illuminating passage for me. Like, and you guys need to read the specific examples that Jessica talks about in here. But like, I think for me, it was like so freeing of being like, oh yeah, relationships don't have to all look the same, and that right. doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> So safe haven is like being received and comforted by someone like who, when I'm struggling or need help, I can turn to, and you're my safe person, right? That refuge Mm -hmm. to turn to and go to. And like, you just accept me how I am, as I am, where I'm at, Mm -hmm. right? 
and secure base is like okay but who pushes me away and like encourages me to go be big in the world or to experiment or to face my fears or to you know finally do that thing i've said i'd wanted to do mm. right so it's that difference of like safety and comfort that we need versus encouragement and even autonomy that that secure base is like i'll be here when you get back but like go be yourself mm. you know or even just like, oh, tell me about that thing that has nothing to do about like me, myself, when I'm listening, mm. you know, so encouraging your partner's interests. So in non-monogamy, you know, secure base would even just be like, yeah, go, go be with that other person, go have an amazing time, mm. you know, and I'll be here when you come back. Do you think mm. that certain people, partners in our lives can be both? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that has become the monogamous impossibility yep. is that they're expected to be all aspects of both. Yes. <laughs> right. Esther Perel, I think, and I quote her in the book, you know, sort of says like all the things we're expecting from our partners that a whole village used to give us. Totally. Um, it's impossible. But yes, in one partner, we can definitely have aspects of both of those things. Um, but then as I talk about in the book, some people are like, oh, I have my more safe haven partners. I have my more secure base partners mm -hmm. or people who, you know, different times or different experiences play different of those roles. I think it's so, yeah. I think hearing that was like almost a permission slip to just mm -hmm. allow each relationship be exactly what it needs to be for me. Yeah. Even as somebody who has never expected, like even in when in monogamy, I've never been like, no way does my partner need to fulfill all of the things, you know? Like that's why I have friends. That's why I have my mom, you know? Like so there's a multitude of humans. Like I think I've always been poly even though I haven't necessarily been practicing it, but I think it, it, even hearing it in the way you described it was like, oh, I don't need to necessarily feel secure in all the ways you know in my partnerships in order for them to be valid and important right yeah so thank you for yeah that. <laughs> yeah and I'm actually learning a lot about that as a parent you know of like like oh I I can't be my son's everything I just can't mm. but my son is undoubtedly securely attached <laughs> mm. to me and his father and his stepfather you know yeah and we all play very different roles in that way. I love Upstate that. Upstate haven, secure basement. Yeah. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, how can I feel that way with my dogs? That's where my brain just went. <laughs> uh, that'll be your book on attachment. Yeah. <laughs> dog security. Right, dog security. Okay, so what I love about your book, and like I said, you guys, you really need to pick up your copy. I'll put the link in the show notes for you to get your copy. It's on Amazon too, yeah, if people want it to is. just order yeah. it that way. Um, but again, it's called Polysecure. And what I love about it is the way you go through it. It's just so – it tackles – each different attachment style so beautifully. But at the mm -hmm. end, you you share a lot of really tangible, actionable steps, which I think mm -hmm. is something that so many people in the self-development world or therapeutic world just miss out on. Um, and one that I wanted to highlight and just share kind of the, the overview of was the hearts um, section, which That's is chapter name. eight, mm -hmm. because it is so fucking good. <laughs> like it is <laughs> – so good. Can you just share a little bit about this and what this is? Sure. Yes. Well, the acronym HEART stands H for fear, E for express delight, 
A for attunement, R for rituals and routines, T for turning towards after conflict, and then F is secure attachment with self, where you do all of those parts to yourself. To yourself. <laughs> right. Which is maybe probably our hardest thing to do, I think, as humans. I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the point is exactly what you're saying. Like I go through how we can be more safe haven and secure base, but then the heart is meant to break it down a little bit further. Like what are some of these real qualities of presence, of mm. being emotionally attuned, of expressed delight that we know from research or what builds secure attachment and bonds and relationships. Yeah. So giving people the like, here's what it is. Here's some suggestions. Of course, I don't have all the answers to it, but like it totally. gives people a launching pad for what to start to do. I think it's so, so, so thoughtful. Genuinely, yeah, it is so thoughtful. And like, as I've been thinking about it in context with my relationships, you know, I was like, okay, where where are there missteps here? Or where can I be adding more to this particular section? And something that I personally realized, like, I do really, really well. And actually, it's funny, before reading this, like, my husband and I were talking, and we were like, we're so good at, like, expressing appreci- appreciation and being here with these, each other, being so present, almost, like, to the point of, like, we're too present, we talk too much, you know? But, like, yeah. we are not great at setting rituals for our relationship, you know? There's mm-hmm. rituals for our life and our yeah. day-to-day, but not so much for our relationships. And that's something that I, w- I want to say in the fall, like, right after or right before I, I read your book um, – we were actively, you know, starting to implement. And it has completely shifted, like, the way that we feel about our dynamic on a day-to-day simply because we've added the ritual of sitting and having coffee and tea in the morning for 30 minutes before our day starts now where we have that connected time together instead of just, like, you know, you know, I don't even know, flailing around as we, like, shower and whatever. Um And also, I I think the biggest one that I think probably most people struggle with is turning towards after conflict, which is so huge, you know, and such a simple, like, act of, like, let's just put our hands together and look at each other. And, you know, I mean, you have a billion other ways of how to how to navigate that in the book. But I think it's something that we often struggle with as humans. Absolutely. Because when there's conflict, we've been not in our social engagement, loving attachment system brain, you know. Yeah. One of my clients, he's like, we're in basement brain right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you're in primal defenses. And so it is really hard. And there's a lot of ego that wants to be right, mm. you know, and, and doesn't want to be humble and just be like, how do we come back to our heart and like what really matters here? Yeah. So yeah. if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I have one of the insecure attachment styles and I really want to actively work towards building a secure attachment style for myself or within my dynamic of my relationships, what would be like the first thing other than reading your book, right. um, Read book. Yeah, that you would recommend? Yeah. I think it would depend on the attachment style. Okay. But I could say more generally, actually, there's two things I'll recommend. One is... Um, the ideal parent meditation. So Daniel P. Brown has one on YouTube. And if people reach out to me, I have four that I recorded. One is general and one's for the three different attachment styles. Um, And that basically is a visualization that walks you through a scenario where you're like with your ideal parents 
and they're meeting all of your attachment needs. Mm, oh my gosh. And, right. And, and then it's catered more towards each of the styles, what those styles really need. Mm. Right? One needs like safety, one needs, you know, um, consistency and, you know, a little bit more than the others. Right. Yeah. So that's one thing. And when people do that for consistently, like you do it heavy hit it five, six times a week, for a few months, it really can rewire the attachment system. Mm. And what I see initially too, is a lot of people start it and then they, all all this grief comes up. So they want to stop because it's hard. Because as you're visualizing the ideal scenario, you're faced also with the pain of that mismatch that you actually had. Yeah. Right. But when people let themselves just keep going through it, I've seen it do wonders. So Mm. that's one. And then the other is embodiment. Right. So this is going to be attachment styles, trauma across the board. Like, how do we get back into our body? Yeah. Right? This is my shit. <laughs> yeah. And um, look, I'm coming up with an embodiment program to start to offer soon. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, literally, how do we get in our body? How do we get grounded in the sensations of our body, the mm-hmm. feeling? Um, and each of the different styles has different things they need to do with the body. I think I do talk about this in the book, but you know, the avoidance dismissive, like actually has to like, their body has to come back alive with their feeling desires again, like, Ooh, I actually have longing. Those feel so dangerous mm. and vulnerable. And I can feel my own vulnerability and know that I'm safe. Mm. Right? Um, the preoccupied has to come, like take their attention out of their partner's body and into their own and learn how to stay. Mm. which isn't easy they want to jump out into everyone else's consciousness (laughs) or skin you know and then you know the disorganized fearful avoidant usually needs how do I actually feel safe and grounded in my own body yeah you know when my body um might have been a very unsafe place to be because of violation yeah that's beautiful I love that oh I just got chills thinking about that yeah it's it's deep work that shit (laughs) Yeah, it is deep work. And part of me is shifting. I mean, the talking part is really important. I mean, having a coherent story of what we've gone through, whether it's childhood or adult relationships is important. Yeah, but it's not sufficient. Yeah, it's an, it's an ingredient. Yep. But we really need to work at this like nervous system level. Yeah, it's both. I mean, there's you it. need to have the awareness to be able to then yeah. do the work to rewire. And it takes mm-hmm. a lot of both. So I right. love that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do fast fun questions in a second, but before we do, I just want to say on page 111 and for all of you who have the book, you can pull this up because there's like a, a there's a, a diagram, but this changed the game for me. And I had a whole debate on my Instagram stories with, with everybody because you talk about the different ways, the different types of non-monogamy and, and specifically you, I had a, a debate about what your, um, definition of monogamy was because at the end you you say um okay some couples that consider themselves monogamous do vary on how emotionally open or close they are to people outside of the relationship but it is common for monogamous couples to consider each other as their only sexual partner and emotional primary in monogamous couples a partner is usually considered to be cheating if they engage sexually with another and or if they share deep or romantic emotions with others and in the in the side things i have what the actual fuck is what I wrote. Because this was the first time that I have ever um, seen somebody write out monogamy 
Oh, yeah. Outside of just the sexual component of it. And yeah. so I got on and I was like, is this what you feel in your monogamous relationships? You know? Um, and I just, because for me, I was monogamous for almost eight years with, you know, with my husband. And then before that, in other partnerships. And I would have never, ever included not having deep, significant, sometimes more significant relationships yep. with other people that I'm not intimate with in a sexual way, but in a romantic way sometimes. And certainly in a, you know, in a conversation, in a w- emotional intimacy standpoint. And it blew my brain that other people didn't think that way. Completely blew my mind. Totally. Yeah. That's why it's an end or because even when I identified as monogamous, me and my first husband, we did. We had very deep emotional connections with other people or like, yes, you can go sleep over that person of the opposite sex's house. And like, it's not a problem. Yeah. You know, we had that. And yet, you know, emotional cheating is a very real and it's a very painful traumatic experience or betrayal in relationships. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as somebody who has always had that perspective, I and honestly, most of that my friends and people in my life have had similar ones. It's not um, one that it's not a dynamic I ever even knew was a thing. If I'm yeah. being completely op- honest, like I just had no idea. Um, and I also know from speaking to many people who identify as um, ethical, ethically non-monogamous that that one diagram has completely impacted the way that they identify and see themselves in like super positive ways. It's given them like – because you – I mean there's like what, eight or nine different ways to identify within the context of, you know, ENM. And I think a lot of people – think that there's like one path and one path only. And yeah. for, for this reason alone, which there are many, many reasons, but go buy this book because truly yeah. like this diagram, I, it's truly changed like m- multiple people of my friends' lives. That's great. I haven't heard much about that piece. Everyone focuses on attachment. Right? Yeah. And in some way that's like the poly 101. Right? Well, totally. But yeah. I also think for you know, even, even people who've been in poly for a while, like it's like you're all poly or, or not, or just open. And the, the middle grounds are less talked about openly, I think, at least in the, in the communities that I'm a part of. So I just really appreciated that. And also just wanted to say that that blew my brain. (laughs) Completely blew my brain. Thank you. And I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's get into fun, fast questions. Um, nothing to do with attachment theory, just for, just for shits and giggles. You ready? I am. I feel like I'm so slow at these things. (laughs) Well, they don't have to be fast for you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Biggest lesson that this pandemic has taught you? Uh. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) What's the first thing that came to your brain? I can't say it. I'll just lose a following completely. Oh, biggest thing the pandemic taught me was um, I can do my business online. Hey. <laughs> I yeah. play it safe with the first one. <laughs> yeah. So your whole therapeutic practice has moved online, I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and has, has that also impacted your speaking engagements in a big way? Yes, it has. Everything's been, you know, instead of doing a book tour, everything's been online, which in some ways is great because yeah. it would have been hard to travel it would have been hard to be like, I have, how do I bring my son with me? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do I do this? And this yeah. is, is this your first book? This is my first book. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I oh, and sure we are coming last. out with the workbook. <gasps> really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So exciting. Do you know when that's happening? Hopefully within the 
first draft's going to come out in the next few months. And so I, my publisher will know better than me, but you know, within the year, I think you're going to see the workbook. That's so exciting. We're trying to get it out fast. I love it. Yeah. People are eating your book up. Like it's everywhere. It really is. Does it feel wild? It's still very surreal. Yeah. You know, because I, I've been saying like, oh, I just feel like I was the chef that cooked the meal that people were hungry for. Like it's, you know, I think it was just, yeah. The best books are those though, right? Where there's a need and you, you see it and you feel it. Yeah. I love that. Okay. An obsession that you developed over the last year. Over the last year. Oh, I'm building a home. So I've like never been a Pinterest person who's like <laughs> looking at like staircases and like tiling. <laughs> like that's never been a thing in my life. So are you building it from the ground up? We are, yeah. Whoa, that's a big task. Yeah. It's a big deal, yeah. So, what is the timeline for that? Like a year? Um, we're still in the design phase. Hopefully, the house will be done by the end of the year. Okay. Fingers crossed. But so, yeah, that's been uh, like watching Tiny Home. You know, all the Netflix things on like the extraordinary homes, tiny homes, like yeah. to get ideas. And I'm someone who's like a minimalist that will like live in an apartment my whole life. Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> Yeah. What is your aesthetic that you're like feeling pulled to? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's some some of me that's like modern, environmental, also wants some cozy, needs to be a lot of light. So it's it's not a warm aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Congrats. Thank you. Okay. The wildest thing about being a published author. The wildest thing about being a published author I feel like that answer is going to come later you know like I haven't seen it all yet for sure um I think the surprising thing was I didn't expect things like book clubs Mm. so when I get like a message from a New Zealand group that's like doing I'm like oh I never even thought how this is like a thing Mm. you know so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the best part is getting obviously feedback from people and like positive, connective reach out. Yeah. Um, some of the wildest things though is when someone's like, there was a typo on page, whatever. And, and I'm like, thank you. <laughs> like, I'm happy. <laughs> like, that's why you emailed me. <laughs> Somebody's just gone out of their way to email you just to tell you that, had, that. that there was a and typo. You know what? I'm grateful. I was like, hey, wrote the editor, we missed, We, you know, after 30 views and however many eyes, we still missed a typo, but, you know, <laughs> Bob in Iowa caught it. Thank you. Oh, my God. I'm sure there are a bunch of typos in my book, and I'm just like, oh. I don't care. Yeah, there has, there will always be more. You all yeah. know if I said T-H-E and I left out the E that I meant the, like, right. yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay, last question. What does it mean to you to live your fuck yes life? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, I mean, it probably sounds so obvious. Like, it means just really being connected to myself. And, you know, in my integrity, like connected to my authenticity. Um, but what I'm learning more and more is it's also not just about, like, my fuck yes life just as an individual like this move that I just made was for more of my tribe you know and that includes 
my fuck yes life is like bigger and different than if I was just me so mm. so it's like our fuck yes life <laughs> you are the first person that has ever answered that question including oh. community mm. I mean I think some people have talked about impact but yeah I love that I think that's mm. so important and I think that just speaks to also the the work you do and who you are as a human because I, I wish that I wish I hope if there's one thing that this year is, has reminded us all of is the importance of humans and yeah. our, our people and that it, to ask for help and have lots of you know points of contact um, that we can you know whether you call that tribe or community or, or QL whatever you want to call right. it exactly. um, but it's I yeah I love that and, and considering you know the whole not just the individual. I think it's really beautiful. Right. Yeah, we moved to a regenerative community. And so, and a lot of it was like, oh, I want to be more a part of the solution and the problem environmentally. Mm. And that's not easy. Yeah. Like, it sounds great. And it's like, there's a lot of reality checks that are mm. like, oh, I've got to give up some shit if I'm going to walk my talk. <laughs> I've never heard of a regenerative community before. Yeah, you've heard of like sustainable community. Sure, yeah. Right? And regenerative is kind of taking it a step further where it's like, we're not just sustaining and not making it worse. We're actually making it better. Where everyone's committed to planting more trees and having an orchard and growing our food and like bringing the wildlife Mm -hmm. back to this area. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. This has been such a such a beautiful conversation and so truly like we just scratched the surface surface of what is in this book. So obviously, like I said, make sure you guys pick up a copy of Polysecure if you haven't already. But also where can everyone find you online, connect with you, all that good stuff? Yeah, just my website, JessicaFern.com. Um, there's some free resources there. And if people subscribe to my website, they'll get notification when there are just like more things coming out like the workbook or a free class on polyvagal theory and being poly. I love that. Um, (laughs) Is that also where they can get access? You said those ideal parent meditations that you've also done recordings of. Is that where they can get access of those as well? Or is that a separate thing? They can just email me and ask for access and I'll give you the secret code. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much for being here. You're amazing. Thank you for having me. You're awesome. (laughs) And there you have it. Thank you, Jessica, so much for coming on the podcast. And for everything we talked about in today's episode, you can check it out at amandacatherineloy.com forward slash podcast forward slash 122 or just scroll down and check out the show notes on whatever you're listening to this on. I also, before we hop off, just wanted to remind you that this is the last week, technically only have a few days left, to sign up for School of Fears, Feels, and Fucks. All the information is in the show notes. It's my three-month group coaching container, super, super affordable, and lots of different price points depending on what your needs are and what your budget is. Um, so take a look. Um, take a look and see if it's the right fit for you. Um, I will not be running it at these prices again, and I don't know when I'll be running it again next. So I know a lot of you are considering signing up, um, so make sure you snag your spot. Again, you can check that out in the show notes or just go to amandacatherineloy.com and check it out at fears, feels, and fucks. Um, And yeah, this was such an amazing episode and I really, really encourage you to read Jessica's book and learn more about attachment theory and what your attachment style is. It will not only really allow you to feel seen in a whole new light, but also allow you to work towards the things that 
you want to work towards to help better yourself, your relationships, and your life. So yeah, until next week, I will see you on the flip side. Bye-bye.